This episode is sponsored by Gorichka Clothing. That's K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A. Gorichka. Gorichka Clothing makes t-shirts, tote bags, and other cool things inspired by Russian and Ukrainian culture. Pre-Putin, of course. They're also currently working on a cookbook that will be filled with Russian recipes, food-related history, literature, and beautiful illustrations. I'm looking at the shirts right now, and they're awesome. They've got one that's got all sorts of drawings of what goes into a borscht soup. You should definitely check it out. Go to garachkaclothing.com. That's K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A clothing.com. Or check them out at Facebook. Facebook.com slash clothing. Garachka. Garachka? Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, these shirts are awesome. Sound like a great company. Check them out. Garachka Clothing. Garichka. Whatever it is. They're great. And now, the episode. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast, the first episode. I am Cody Clark. With me is John D'Amico. Yo. And Jenna Ipkar. Hello. You know them, you love them from the site. You love me from the site. You love all of us. And we're all here together. This is the most smug film writers who've ever been in a room at one time. You guys have never met, right? No. No. It's the first day. All right. So we are here today, and the topic is writing about film. Because that seems like a good place to start, because we all write about film. That's what people know and love us for on the site. And we might as well talk about that process, especially in light of a very recent article by Matt Zoller Seitz. And he wrote a piece called, Please Critics Write About the Filmmaking. People writing about film and not going into... You know, how shots are constructed, why shots are constructed, all these aspects of film that aren't really being written about in film criticism. Did I describe that accurately? Sure. Yeah? All right. (laughs) So, let's talk about this. I think he's got a great point. I think we're all on the same page here with that, which is, you know, when you're reading, you know, nine times out of ten pieces on a film talking about hey i enjoyed it this was great this wasn't but it's not really going into the construction or deconstruction of these images and why they're there and all that and he even makes the case look you don't have to spend the whole piece writing about it but at least maybe a sentence or two addressing some aspect and why it's there i thought it was a really interesting article because i think that I think most people don't have that sort of level of awareness in general. You know, people like something because they like it, and they don't really care to know why they like it, and they don't think twice about it half the time. And so that's what was really interesting, is that he is bringing something up that we all know and we all recognize and and acknowledge in our even criticism of something, and yet we're not even saying, like, how we got there. We're sort of glossing over it. Right. It's like uh, when you're in math class and they're like, show the work, and nobody's (laughs) showing the work. Need and some they're long just doing it in there. their head, and they're not really thinking about the process. And like, it's a kind of a thing where you have to like tune your brain or like switch a light switch of thinking about why things are there. You know, when you're watching something, yeah, and- it's self perpetuating because you had um, what a lot of people consider a golden age of filmmaking was the uh, '60s into the '70s type stuff with Godard and all of them, and in France, and a lot of that that realm of filmmaking which really pushed the ideas of what you were able to do in a movie came about because they were all film critics before they were filmmakers and they were all people who spent their childhoods in their early 20s just sort of like studying how movies work and not necessarily like major prestige things or whatever like low budget little crime movies and um, what were poverty row movies at the time they just sort of like built these powers of observation and this conception of film as something that is is constructed with intent and with meaning and that right, the decisions you make yeah mere entertainment yeah the decisions you make whether or not you're going to go to a close up or a wide shot isn't just a purely aesthetic decision it's a, it's a decision that impacts it's a storytelling the, yeah it's a storytelling thing and it impacts the the balance of the rest of the film and um, the generation of film criticism 
for the most part, even though there's some great stuff going on now around. Mostly by us. Let's not uh, <laughs> bury the lead here. <laughs> no, I mean, there, there's really some terrific stuff, especially on the Internet. But the sort of predominant concept of film writing now is telling people whether or not to go see something, which wasn't really always the case. And it's not really how it began. It was really more about what did you see mm-hmm. and like sort of why decisions were made the way they were. And it was the type of thing that as a kid reading it, you could learn a little more about how and why films are made the way they are. Well, it was it was the way to learn that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm this sure... Is, this is pre-film school as an accessible thing. These are pre-film like film programs and stuff like that. We're talking about, you know, if I understand you correctly, we're talking about a time where the way to learn about film was to watch a lot of films and talk about them, or if you couldn't even see them, read people's you know a lot of people's only exposure to a lot of films before vhs before you know that access was reading people's critiques and analysis of these films yeah picador used to publish his books in the 70s that are like the coolest thing i always try to get them when i can um this was when the only home access you could have had to a movie would have been if you had a projector exactly people who didn't there are these books of um they did like Frankenstein, the Maltese Falcon, all these sort of like classic movies. And it's just a frame of every single shot of the movie in a row on hundreds of pages from beginning to end with the dialogue and little text boxes below it. And it's kind of cool because when you look at them now, it's this completely alien way of looking at a movie. It's this sort of like static, almost um, like parsable visual presentation that repeats thousands of times. Right. And yeah, that was, that was the exposure he had, you know, like I, I was reading some piece, I can't remember what it was, but it was a guy talking about seven samurai and how for a really long time. And when I find the piece, I'll post a link to it for a really long time. It was just his movie that he had heard about. Actually, I think it was, it was a clip of George Lucas talking about it. Actually, I'll, I'll, Put a link to it. It really? was George Lucas talking, I think, on as an extra on like one of the new Kurosawa uh, Criterion releases. Young Lucas or current Lucas? Current Lucas talking about being young Lucas. Mm. And Seven Samurai and all these Kurosawa films were movies that he would hear about from like friends and stuff like that, but didn't actually see until he got into like film school and stuff like that. And that was his access to it. But before that, it was like hearing rumors about like this amazing film, this really interesting film and not being able to sit down and see it for like a really long time. Didn't he produce one of the, uh, Kurosawa movies? Cause he and, um, Coppola and all them, man, they felt so indebted to Kurosawa and just the way he created images. I'm pretty sure it was either Ron or Kagemusha, one of the eighties ones. I think they mm-hmm. like pitched in and financed or produced it or something. We'll have to look that up. We'll, uh, well, we have a computer here. Should I look it up now? Sure, look it up. We'll, All right, we'll I'll look into it. All right, Jenna. This, I was saying, it reminds me, actually, you know, but the part, here's the other part of this, though, is that a lot of the, the reason to have shots a, a certain way is to be more intuitive, to, to have you not um, notice um, that you're watching a film and have you experience an emotion. So I think that it's maybe interesting that we do have to sort of pull back and then talk about it right. then. So, I mean, I think also about, like, really old Russian movies where you have people that would move in certain directions or, or things were shot, you know, like a, a circle was considered a weak uh, shape, whereas yeah. angles were the power shape. And so you look at something like strike and everyone's running in uh, diagonals and everything's like, you know, built into a triangle essentially throughout this whole film. And like, you have to talk about that in order to watch it, but you also can, you know, it is, it's intuitive. You watch it and you see this assertive power, you know, there's never like a weak, shot unless it's a circle. Well, the, the old Russian ones are interesting because they um, the big problem in the early years of film criticism there's a really good book about this called uh, Film as Film by V.F. Perkins but one of the big problems for sort of the first generation of film writers was um, exactly this how do you talk about the construction of a film and the Russian ones part of the reason they're so esteemed now is that first generation of Russian films was um 
they were structured in a way that it's easy to discuss them. Like you look at something like, um, like in uh, Potemkin when there there's the the big riot, and then they keep cutting back to these stone lions, and it looks like the stone lions are waking up. And what it is is it's sort of a series of shots composed like a sentence. It's um, it's saying something like. The Russian people were lions waking up. And it's a very clear, almost grammatical construction of a right, film. That was, that was the beginning of film grammar but as a deliberate sort of... It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, it was sort of an offshoot, and it's something that doesn't exist anymore. And my point is, meanwhile, while that was going on, you had um, the Chaplin Keaton crew, the, the American comedians, who everybody at the time knew were among the best and most important filmmakers, but what they were doing, their placement of the camera and everything was so intuitive that it was, um, it was harder to talk about them. Mm-hmm. So the first generation until, um, James Aggie in the forties, they really didn't talk about the most important movies of those times, which were the American silent comedies. Cause nobody knew how to talk about them in a way that would feel as um, illuminating as the way they could talk about this sort of easier to parse Russian movies. But meanwhile, when you look at the direction film took, they we really followed much more in the model of the um, American silent comedies, where um, you don't construct sentences with your edits, you construct lines of action, and you construct... Well, certainly, certainly more fluid. I think a lot of those old Russian movies are really trying to imitate art, uh, like paintings. Yeah, and then yeah, you, we cubism. sort of moved. We moved beyond, and almost maybe with American, maybe is what you're, you're saying is that uh, it's more, uh, it's more like a, a book. <laughs> you know, turning a book into something that you can watch versus um, having a moving painting in front of you or I a mixture up of both. The uh, thing, by the way, was Kagemusha. The, that was the one where they were executive producers on the Lucas and <laughs> Coppola. So that's the one. It was just the two of the them? Fact. I couldn't remember if it was them and Spielberg or just they, the two of them. It was the two of them and they were executive producers for the international version of it or something. Or if you look on YouTube, you can see a uh, whiskey ad that uh, they did with Kurosawa at the same time. Nice. While they're filming it. Like we'll put a link Suntory to that on whiskey. the site. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So... Un- one of the examples that he gives in the piece, just to talk about specifically for a moment, is he talks about 12 Years a Slave, which I haven't seen, but John's seen and Jenna, you've seen? Yep. What'd he talks about... Yeah, what did you think about it? You know what? I uh, I liked it. I thought it was a good movie. I didn't emotionally connect with it. And, and I thought that there was something missing. I thought there was a real distance. That's interesting. People say that a lot about it. Yeah. yeah and, and, and which isn't to say... I thought um, the acting was amazing across the board. I thought it was fantastic acting. And yet there was just something missing. And I don't know that's if it how was I, the storytelling or... That's how I felt about Hunger. The, the first McQueen mm, one. Yeah. I really liked it, but it felt um, academic to me. But these last two, this one in Shame, I really liked. They I haven't been, dragged me in. I haven't seen 12 Years of Slave, but I haven't been able to connect to Hunger or Shame. Like, I I tried both. I haven't watched the whole thing of both. Just because when I was watching them, like, at, like, 20 or 30 minutes, I just drop off. And I'm like, I'm not connected to any of this. I loved Shame. I think that was my favorite movie of uh, 2011. Yeah, you really love that one. Yeah. Yeah, well, Michael uh, Fassbender is a huge talent, eh? Huh? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. learned a lot about that, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Spectacle. The thing that he talks about in this piece about 12 Years a Slave is that there's this crane shot that very clearly uh, is a deliberate... Uh, I haven't seen the film, so who, who am I to be talking about this crane shot that I haven't seen? But uh, nobody's bringing up the crane shot in reviews. And nobody's talking about it. And why is that? Because it's this thing that everybody should be talking about with this film, or at least some people should be talking about or addressing once in a while, right? Well, I think to to play devil's advocate a little bit, I wonder if the reason why is because it's a a sort of obvious white devil's advocate. (laughs) (laughs) It's a you know, it's this shot of of him uh, being as uh, beaten up, and then the the camera sort of just pans up and out, and you realize you're in DC, you know, in the heart of of America. Like, I mean, it's more than that, and it's 
I guess less than that too, because it's what it is is a shot that pans up to the white the Capitol building still under construction, which is a really interesting historical quirk of that period that Lincoln used a lot too. The concept of um, an America that was still under construction, but it's less than that because it's not even I think the piece so much that nobody's talking about this crane shot because it's an easy target. Nobody's talking about any of the form of this film or really many other films. It's not like you have these um, reviews where they they skirt past the obvious visual coding in the film to talk about some, you know, hidden undercurrents. It's just they, they... which is funny to me because I it's so I think it's so important actually in general not 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 to be a devil's advocate now um, I I think that well, you know an angels advocate angels advocate whatever whatever that is um, you know like uh, I think about the actually the article I wrote for a small website called Smug Film about um, I've never heard of it. <laughs> where can we find that what? I think it's like imdb.com or something. no Smug Film S M U G S M U G F I F I L M dot com Dot com. All right. Google what, it on the Google. And what's the piece? Uh, my uh, article about um, always finish the damn film. Right. And I think that it, it reminds me of um, that movie Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, uh. which is Ukrainian movie. Really fucking weird. And and the thing about that movie was it's really visually fantastic, interesting. But it was shot that when I saw it, I left that theater angry, like so pissed. And I was like, because it was shot like a comedy to me. Just the way the camera sort of just like moves around that and reminded me. shot with the tree me, where you see the tree fall down in first person. Just everything felt like it looked like a bad Terry Gilliam. Like it was like just everything was constantly moving and, and, and swaying. And it just reminded me of like cheesy 60s comedies. And yet none, nothing was funny in that film. Well, it's kind of interesting because that's sort of, um, that's an example of looking at a film and, and history did a lot of the work for you in looking at that film. Because when it was made, I mean, it was really seeing what you could do with smaller cameras. Sure. So there wasn't any precedent for um, that kind of look. And now it looks a little slapsticky. Which is, but that's so funny. You know, it's like, I, I feel like I can't even think about the movie without thinking about the camera work. I mean, it's just so, it's so can. in my face. I don't, I don't think you're supposed to think about it without thinking of the camera work. It's, um, because what else is there? There's almost no dialogue in it. It's really sort of oblique, but it clearly like it's jammed with some meaning that we're not getting here because I think he went to prison for it. Oh, well, it was that, like a major, which is what's kind of current actually now. It was basically just being pro-Ukrainian film. Yeah, uh, back in when you know Russia was a yeah. Monster. I gotta check that one out. Man. It's cool. It's it, good. But like, I remember when I was picking the the picture for that article when you were talking about. It, I was like, man, that's a really nice shot. I have it, I think. I'll give it yeah. to you. Yeah, all right. It's such a powerful part of that film, though, the political element, and it's something that I'm just completely stone deaf to. Right, a lot of that's, you know... Yeah, stuff it's just that this, we just like, cultural... Have no awareness of, yeah. yeah. Wall up. So it's kind of interesting. I guess there are so many different ways of looking at that movie. Oh, totally. But it's just... I mean, I think of also like I think maybe the times that I I think most about um, how something is shot is either if it completely delights me, the camera work, um, actually like the cranes are flying, talking about Russian movies that like one that long shot of her on the bus and then she gets off the bus, it pans out to this massive parade. Like, you know, that's just such a a fantastic like you have to think of the camera work with that. But other even maybe a more uh, recent example and another reference to my own (laughs) reviews on Smug is um, Wolf of Wall Street has some camera work that just pissed me off, man. Like, mm-hmm. really got to me. And so it's interesting. It's, it, you know, it, I agree with him in this article. Is that, like, you know, it, it's tough to even look at that movie. If you look at that movie without thinking of the camera work, it's a pro-Jordan uh, Belfort movie. You know, if you think of the plot, you think of how it was shot and et cetera. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that it is important, at least as he's saying, that you need to, to acknowledge it. Yeah, because there's the little details, like the that lingering close-up of um, the girl after she gets her head shaved. There's just like two seconds focusing on her, and there's so much packed into those two seconds. Absolutely. And if you blow past it for... If you essentially treat the movie as a plot synopsis, you get nothing out of it. Oh, yeah, he's like a hero. Yeah, but there's so many... I mean, there's so many tiny little examples, too. Like, in one of my probably, like, top tens, 
Bring It On, which is a movie that... Love Bring It On. Yeah, like, everybody loves it, but nobody really treats it as a as a movie where the form is contributing anything to the content. Right. But if you'll remember when my girl Torrent Shipman and my boy Cliff, um, when they have that, like, sleepover, and Kirsten Dunst stays at Elijah Dushka's house, and she wakes up the next day, and there's, By the like, way, I'm already... Little... If I hadn't seen the movie, I would be already sold on the fact of her <laughs> staying over. Oh, yeah. House. Also, I love that I know it in such <laughs> tedious detail. But anyway, she stays over, and, like, she's got this, like, little love affair going with the brother, and it's all, like, unrequited at this point, or whatever. But it's, uh... You have these, like, three small scenes in a row. Um, one of her watching him play guitar... One of them brushing their teeth in the same bathroom at the same time. That's, that's one of my favorite scenes, that toothbrushing one. Yeah, and there's like one after where they're on the swings or whatever. But it's this like 10-minute stretch of a love story being told without a single word. Exactly. And why would you need a word there? It's such a typical, not in a bad way, but sort of like it's it's predetermined. Yeah, we know the tropes. We know the... Uh, it's not even a trope. It's just a, a sort of like... It, it's predetermined in a movie right, like but that. It, if somebody's seen, you know, that sort of romance blossom in tons of movies, yeah. you need less when you're hitting it with your movie that you're making in 2001 or something. You yeah. Know? But I think that's probably the year. 2000, ago. actually. 2000? Oh, know. yeah. Directed by per- Peyton Reed. But yeah, no, it's just like this really impressive, tiny piece of... Um, powerfully intelligently done filmmaking that would carry over to any other genre yeah like if you're like a film student or you're like a kid who wants to make movies i mean that's the kind of moment that you can learn how to make a movie from that's a lesson and you don't need to go to as much as i love it like a 12 years a slave for it you can and you don't need to go back in time you don't need to get back to the 60s or the 70s if you're a 14-year-old kid and it's the year 2000, you can watch Bring It On and learn about film. Yeah, much you know? as I did. Yeah. Every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For, you know, minutes at a time. Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. The other uh, thing about this article, though, is he says that in the end, he says it's your duty to write about this. What do you guys think about that? I, I, I'm almost like a little on the fence. I wonder if... I, I, I do think that there are movies where the, the message is just more important than how it's shot, which isn't to say that makes it a well, better movie. Well, particularly documentaries would be a great example of that, where like sometimes the camera work is just whatever was available there, or it's just talking well, heads or something. I don't agree with that at all. I don't agree with that at all. Well, specific documentaries where... Like, I, I watched one maybe a month ago called Schooled, which is about... Uh, you know, you could have called it four years a slave, essentially, because it's about college basketball and the indentured servitude of that. And the fact that these players make no money, they're essentially working full time. They don't really have a union. They don't have any representation. You know, uh, coaches are being penalized for, like, giving them, like, lunch money and stuff like that. Like, it's this very specific thing where... You know, this is a billion-dollar industry, and they're not getting any cut of it whatsoever. And the way that it was shot and everything, you know, it's it's shot like, you know, you're run-of-the-mill, talking head kind of thing, kind of documentary you could show in a school that uh, just has, like, all those graphics and stuff like that, you know, that come up but, periodically. But, you know, when I'm watching it, I don't really care about how it's made. The message is so interesting to me that it's just an afterthought. But form isn't just whether you move the camera or don't move the camera. Form is that it's most important in a documentary because it's what you include when and why. Absolutely. I mean, there are 50 million editorial decisions in every single document. I say all the time that the movies that every movie that has the least objective basis in whatever you want to call an objective reality is a documentary. And that's the way it should be. They're, they're like the ultimate subjective recasting of, of life. And even, even if it's all shot with a security camera, I mean, if there's somebody packaging it in any way, that's part of the form and that's part of the message. And even if it's all very, Classic talking heads, head shoulders, almost no cuts, straightforward. Even right, that the presentation in that, and of itself is of part that. of the message. Absolutely. Even that packaging. That, I mean, it's essentially like the film is wearing a suit. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's as important, maybe more important than any other aspect of it, I think. That makes me think of, like, uh, Dear Zachary, which is yeah. such a depressing, painful movie that's going to make you cry, but it's because it's so it's edited so well. It could have been I, News at 11. I felt the... I hated the editing of it. Really? I loved the... I thought the story was absolutely fascinating. I couldn't stand the editing. I thought the editing was um, clunky, but perfect. Because it was essentially... It, it felt like an outsider art to me, where it was... It was clunky because it was personal. Like in the middle, I don't want to give too much away because that's like, I mean, you really got to experience that's that. That's a movie, movie you don't want to talk about at all. You just want to tell people. Yeah, and that's, that's a perfect example of a movie where sometimes talking about it in detail isn't really going to serve your audience of people who have either never heard of it, haven't watched it. You know, there's some. But why is some that necessarily movies, the audience of a critic? People who haven't seen or watched Well, what I'm saying is there are these specific movies like Dear Zachary, you want to tell people just. Watch the movie. Yeah. Bring some just tissues. Sit down. And watch the movie. Watch it. And that's, you know, you can stretch that to a thousand words, but essentially that's, re- you don't really want to sit down and talk about the construction of it yet. You want it to be this organic experience. Yeah. And, you know, occasionally I will run into movies like that where, you know, I don't really don't want to say many things about it. I don't you know. know there's, writing there's a, smug there's a moment in the middle of that film where it's almost like, the film itself starts to break down in agony. And it's like one of the most interesting editorial decisions I've ever seen. And it's killing me that I can't go into it in mm-hmm. more detail here. But it, it it's like everything stops in its tracks and like the film itself is just screaming. And I, it, it's just, you know, the, the the editing of that movie is so unlike the editing of almost any other movie of its kind because it's practically a diary. Well, as you pointed out, the outsider artist quality, there's a homegrown instinctual uh, yeah,ness to the editing that personally I didn't like, but I, I think it's definitely a movie worth seeing. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I think sometimes it really didn't work, and then when it did work, it was... Especially towards the beginning, it's hard to get into because of that. Uh, yeah editing aspect it's funny though because we we all just sort of agreed that this was a movie that you can't really write about or talk about and yet we've described such an emotional film completely in these uh, understanding of editing and i think that we really uh reviewed the film really well just now you know what i mean <laughs> right, like, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. so it's like a sort of like it's like well then you- then i guess the better thing to say is there are certain movies where it feels like you can't really talk about them and then in not talking about them you end up even say more about it. I think it's more like it's a movie that you don't want to talk about in the presence of somebody who hasn't seen it yet. Right. I mean, if... That's if, really what If this were the it. Dear Zachary Appreciation Station podcast, <laughs> we'd be breaking that sucker down minute by minute. Right. It would be a very painful experience, but... <laughs> How yeah. about movies, though, that are just shot terribly? How about, like, movies that are just technically horrible, but uh, yet have, you know, maybe are emotionally interesting or, or intriguing? I mean... Is it like, or is it maybe intriguing because they're just so badly done? I'm trying to think of a great example of this. I mean, there's surely there's terrible documentaries out there that are still maybe worthwhile watching, or even if you think about something like The Room, I suppose. But I feel like that's a cop out example. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to find an example of a movie where, if those other aspects are working, then the camera work and you know if it's not necessarily well done doesn't end up tying into it and making it work in some small way. Right. You know, it, it's hard to find an example. I'm less interested in, and maybe this is just petulance on my part, the concept of as a critic, arbitrating whether or not the decisions in a movie were good or bad in any objective matter. I think it's more important to look at a movie and look at it as its own internal organism almost you know with right with qualities that rules. work qualities that don't like manos the hands of fate is uh the editing of that movie is bananas it just doesn't ascribe to any rules but depending under the this is another aspect actually depending on the conditions under which you watch it and the mood you're in that kind of makes it work in this weird like hypnotic unpredictable kind of way you are still watching monos the <laughs> yeah the like there's this there's this sort of right, like the, the mst3k thing kind of 
steers you through the movie. Whereas if you were to watch it without that steering of these jokes as a through line, you're going to notice the editing a lot more. And the the weird editing that you're talking about, if you're watching without yeah, that, that yeah, track I feel like over. everybody who's seen that episode of that show owes it to themselves to sit down and watch the movie on its own. I would agree with that because it's a very weird, different experience. It's almost like like sometimes I don't understand the the criteria under which some of these movies get arbitrated as a good or a bad version of that. Like I don't understand why Racerhead is a good example of that transgressive hypnotic rule breaky kind of thing and then manos is a bad example even though it makes you feel pretty much the same when it's all done well that's the uh hypocrisy of a lot of the art world which has been you know over time there have been attempts to rectify that by acknowledging outsider art and uh specific uh examples but i think when it comes to film there's a quick like with a film like Birdemic or whatever, you know, there's a there's the the initial impulse is always this is weird, so it's funny. Yeah, you know, this is different, so it's funny. Yeah, it's almost a defense mechanism, right? I mean, you I, you run to the humor as the, your first method of making sense of what's going on. I would say though, with Eraserhead versus Monos, I think that just. The difference is not so much... I, I agree that, yeah, you feel the same way after watching both. I'm not saying there's not a difference, because Eraserhead is better. That, yeah, but and that's... More, but more you know what? deliberate. It's the, it's the camera work in Eraserhead that makes it better. Yeah, I that think lighting is that's beautiful. That's it. You know, honestly, I mean, the, and the acting's better. And, and But, of course, have you ever seen Manos in a way that wasn't cropped to VHS, fuzzy, and with little guys in the corner? Exactly. We, we haven't seen that new version of Manos that that guy's working on where he found the, the yeah. 35 millimeter of it. And I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see it uh, pristine, you know? The thought of seeing Manos not as a, as you pointed out, like a VHS, 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 like degradation kind of thing. We got to do a field trip to that if that comes yeah. out. Yeah, I don't know what the story... He wanted to raise money I for like it's a Blu-ray. It's still ongoing, I think it's ongoing, just... Right? It takes time, yeah. yeah. But the, the other danger, I think, of... And I thought MS23K was hysterical. I love that show. But I think the danger of that kind of um, thought process is it ends up homogenizing movies. Because if you, if you have this film culture where if something is weird, it'll be at best ignored, at worst ridiculed for it, you have... I mean, how many people out there have DSLRs and how many of these movies they shoot with them look identical? Exactly. Because they just are caught up in the rules of it. Whereas if you look at the similar revolution that happened when cameras got smaller, late 50s, early 60s, everything looked pretty different. And a lot of it was terrible. A lot of it was terrible. But the good stuff was good in a way that it could have only existed in that moment. Like, uh, you ever seen movies about Jonas Mikas? I haven't explored them. I'm, I've been sort of backtracking because I've been looking at some of the cinema transgression stuff, like yeah. the Richard Kern stuff. I've been sort of backtracking to Nick Zed, whatever, backtracking to Jonas Mikas. And he had that, like, prison movie or something. Yeah, The Brig. Yeah, I got to check that one out. I was, I was just looking the, at the that. The big the one, day. though, was Walden, which was he just uh-huh. walked around New York with a camera for like a couple of years and filmed Yeah, that's everything. the one that. And yeah, it's all, yeah, it's I like jittery and it's, sure. got this, it's got this look and this vibe to it that you can't, you can't duplicate. It has to be sort of authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like just taking sort of a cross section of the filmmakers I know in their 20s and 30s in, like, New York, L.A., Austin, Toronto, all these places, there's this sort of, like, cultural push towards the middle. And it feels like you don't really get that that sense that we should have now where everybody just grabs their camera and they go out and they shoot hours of footage and they shoot it wrong. And then that's how they learn how to shoot it right. Right. I mean, I feel like DSLRs, they, they, they're... Um, people are so careful about using them right and color grading them right and just making sure everything looks right in the specs that they're pushing any sort of individuality well, out of Well, cameras it. are moving by so quickly that they're not spending the time as, uh, uh, what's his name? Damn it. Mike Figgis. As yeah. Mike Figgis wrote about in his book, Digital Filmmaking, which is a book everybody should check out. 
you know, a lot of what he talks about is obsolete in it because he's talking about like the first sort of DV cameras and stuff. And a, a great point that he makes in that book is that you have to figure out what your camera likes. It doesn't matter what camera it is. It could be the cheapest camera, the most expensive camera. Every camera has its likes and dislikes as far as color, as far as light. And if you can figure that out, then you can sort of have this connection with that camera. And that's something that I figured out with like rehearsals, which is I would use like auto white balance on it, but I would know the certain situations where I could get these colors that I like adored you know, by using that auto white balance and by tweaking, uh, let's say, you know, the shutter speed or the ISO or something like that, I would get these effects and these colors, like in the first scene with like all the color, like on her body and stuff like that. It was all basically because there was like a colored lamp at a certain spot. And I knew those kind of rules so that like when I would go into a person's space, I could sort of build the color theme of that movie by just replicating that aspect. Whereas if somebody else with that camera went through and shot all the same scenes, it would look completely different. Yeah. Look at 28 days later, which is shot all wrong. Mm -hmm. It was shot SD digital in a time that nobody was doing that. Nobody really should have been doing that. It's uh, it goes to watercolor in one shot. I mean, it's just peculiar looking, but it would not have that palpable last day's feel if it was shot any differently. And if that the film rain didn't, specifically yeah. blown up to 35 millimeter in theaters, one of the best theater experiences. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I, I, it uh, looks so in, good yeah. on 35 millimeter. Because you get Did like you little details. I actually didn't. I, I'm real. I was afraid of it, <laughs> but I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it since I love that movie. That was the first was movie in like trailers. a while. That was the first movie in like a while that people were really scared of. Yeah. People were really scared about that one. When Which it is honestly, out. it's a bummer. And I, I realize that now because I think that movie is just a great film. And it's not even so much a horror movie. It's just, just a it's great beautiful. movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's like The Exorcist. It really works as a horror movie and then also as just this sort of long form tragedy. Well, the parts of Exorcist that work for me the most. Medical tests. Medical tests. Oh, my God. There you go. All the brain stuff, all the her on the table stuff. That's the part of the film that I connect with. I don't connect with any of the other stuff that's like the iconic stuff about that movie. It just doesn't work for me. But those parts, I'm like... Yeah, when she's getting the spinal tap and all exactly. that. Yeah. And even the way that it starts with like the shots of like the sun and stuff like that. There's something about those shots that really key me into the movie. Whereas if it started out in the house with stuff already sort of cooking with that, I really wouldn't have had that same connection. It's like all the stuff that's away from the story with The Exorcist. That's all That's all my favorite stuff of The Exorcist. You know, when they're at the doctor's office, when he's, you know, he finds like the little thing like in the desert and stuff like that. Those are my favorite moments of that movie. Yeah, and The Exorcist is a good example of um, that whole concept of shooting wrong, which Friedkin does that a lot. And it's why I think he's consistently one of the most interesting filmmakers out there. He... Um, like, there are scenes in that movie, particularly Karis's apartment and all that stuff, that are just almost incomprehensibly dark. And there's so much grain on them. And no, nobody would shoot that now. And then you have these other moments, like when they're in the desert, that are the exact opposite. They're just like a wash in light. And there's just sort of like a dynamism to the range of and quality of light in that movie that I feel like... In the, in the past maybe 15 years or so is sort of crushed to the middle. Although maybe it's getting better because nothing is worse than the 80s. Sure. I love, I love a lot of the playing around with ISO that would go on in the 70s especially, which I wish people would do more with their cameras now, but everybody's like, all right, keep it to the lowest possible. Yeah, you don't want shoots any... at 100. Exactly, and that's the worst thing because it, it just... When you bump up the ISO, let's say you're shooting in a low light scenario and you want the exposure to be uh, enough that you can tell what's going on, you bump up the ISO and that's bumping it up digitally in the camera. So you get you gain noise on the image, but you gain the proper exposure and color that you're looking for when you're shooting in a low light scenario or sometimes even middle light. You can bump it up if you need to. But the point is, 
instead of overlighting something and shooting at a low ISO and sort of trying to recreate that low light experience with your shots and your scene. Right. Then when you're shooting with a high ISO, you don't have to worry about that. You're grabbing what you're seeing. You're constructing the light that you like. Then you're just bumping up the ISO and that, that light and that color that you wanted is still there, but there's a little bit more noise on the image, you know, and that's the trade off. And, any noise on the Im- on the image is considered wrong per se you know by the uh essentially the film the the digital video community that's like reviewing techies. all the techies yeah. essentially that's wrong because you shouldn't be using it like that because that looks quote unquote amateurish but if you're using it in a situation where it works then who the fuck cares you know like i always i just use whatever i need to use for the scene you know, if I need to go up to 3200, I'll do that because, sure. you know, you get the shot and you get the colors and it looks the way it needs to look. I don't care about the fucking noise because other scenes all be at 100 and you get a sort of breather. But people like when they're when they're approaching like maybe the Black Magic or the GH2 or any of these cameras, they're playing by the rules of keep the ISO as low as possible, keep the shutter speed at this specific amount. And they're not venturing into, you know, these possibilities with these cameras that are they'll, they'll never realize because by the time some other new camera comes out, they'll be onto that camera and they'll be doing, doing the exact same things, but on that camera, you know? Right. And it's sort of a physical version of what we were talking about with what's going on in film criticism, where things are either right or wrong. A low ISO is bright and a high is wrong. They're they're not. Absolutely not. Expressing two different things. They're two different ways of making a visual sentence. I think high ISO. It always looks hot to me. Like if you're shooting something hot, I feel like that grain. Yeah, and it helps, especially in horror. Like I'll I'll watch a a horror movie with a high ISO and be completely in it. Like that that kind of it, it takes on this like feeling. Um, that you're actually there that you will lose if you know you watch these like big budget horror movies that come out and there's no grain whatsoever essentially and yeah if there paranormal is grain, activity three which pretended to be shot i liked it a lot but it was acting like it was shot on vhs mov- and it's widescreen right. a movie like paranormal activity would benefit greatly from high iso the first in certain one? instances they rock it the first one's i think it's gorgeous right but the third one, they really uh, they started to homogenize the look a lot. Is there something maybe to be said though for movies that go out of their way to look amateurish? I mean, versus um, like what? Well, I mean, like I feel like there's almost an insincerity. Yeah, well, mumblecore maybe. Sure. That's With a, a lot of the mumblecore stuff, you know, they're treating the camera like it, you know, weighs as much as like a penny or something. They're like. You know, zooming in with shots and holding it with like one hand and stuff. You know, there's a lot of that quality where they're they are probably treating it more amateurish than they should. There's this movie that I, I watched uh, like a day ago called New Low, and I watched it because I'm I've been part of this interview with a friend of mine uh, conducted by a friend of mine where she put me with this guy Adam Bowers who directed this movie New Low that was in Sundance in like 2010, and he shot it. Uh, pretty SD, you know, he used, I forget what camera he used at the time, but it wasn't like a great camera. Um, and, but he, he got good lenses and he shot it in a way that feels so deliberate. He used a lot of, you know, tripods. He used, he did some tracking shots. He, he treated the camera like it was an expensive camera. Like he treated it like he had like a big budget camera and a lot of budget for that. And it's a small tale, like it's a sort of romantic comedy, Woody Allen template kind of thing. The kind of mumblecore-ish vibe, but he's not treating it in that shaky mumblecore way. He's treating it like an actual movie. And you're watching it and you're looking at this SD stuff, but because, you know, the the shots feel so deliberate, you go along with the entire, like, standard def look of it and you it just feels like, oh... This is all deliberate. I can be on board with this rather than like 
if he was if he got like in his head about it and he was like man i have this crappy camera fuck everything and just like had like his friend like hold the camera and like zoom in with shots and like be all shaky with it and not really care about the audio and stuff like this thing with the movie is like the audio is very good um all that stuff like he really rose to the occasion with it and you go on board with it like with 28 days later the audio is incredible in that movie the shots are amazing I feel like that's really what what makes most movies be amateur versus professional. Exactly. It has less to do with the camera work and more to do with the audio. If the audio, audio is shit, absolutely. then the, the movie, I mean, it could be any movie. It could be shot beautifully on, like, skip some, like, Alexa with terrible audio. Yeah. That, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because bad audio is physically painful. Yeah. It, it's, it makes no it, it just terrible experience. You know, you can't get into it. That's one of those things, though. I wish... Um, more filmmakers would start embracing that fact and trying to make quieter movies. Mm-hmm. You know, like all these people with DSLRs that don't really shoot anything with them that have screenplays, really Woody Allen screenplays. I know 50 million people like that. Go out and shoot something silent. So you can do. That's, that's a great point. If you don't have the capacity to do uh, studio quality audio, then work around it. Well, that's that's that was my approach with Siobhan that I'm working on now is completely silent film and that's one factor that I never have to worry about and I can focus on the shots more. I can focus on the performances and the look of the performances as they're giving them. I don't have to worry about great quality audio because there's going to be no audio. And I think that's a, especially with comedy, like that's a great approach. Silent, you know, you silent comedy is a thing because you don't necessarily always need that sound there, you know? It works because, you know, what's funny doesn't need to necessarily be heard. I wonder if that would really take off right now. I feel like a lot of comedy is, is always, um, it's about trends. And I, I, I feel like the, the, the comedy that you get out of silent comedies is a little, that visual comedy and that sort of more slapsticky thing is not really in right now. Right, that's that's fallen out of favor. But yeah. in some ways it hasn't, because you look at a movie like The Hangover or whatever, there are a lot of silent comedy aspects to like the way that Galifianakis throws himself around or these other guys, you know, like with the tiger in the, uh, the bathroom and stuff. You know, that's essentially a silent... Con- that's almost like a bringing up baby kind of scenario. Um, I would love to see a remix of those two movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What we really were talking about... Right. Before initially. we got, you know... Wonderful tangents, it, though. Yeah. Was this concept of, of, of the line in the article about this being a duty. This kind of writing about form being the duty of a critic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting point. Yeah, that's how the article ends, actually, is him saying that it is. It is your duty to do this. And he mentions also that it, saying that something is, like, gritty or shaky isn't enough for him. Exactly. You um, just did... Right. Though I'm on the... Something happen. But maybe... But, I mean, I think it depends, really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, the fence about whether or not it's a, a duty... I think that you should absolutely mention it. I think it's always important. I don't think that you have... without Obviously, a movie's visual. Without <laughs> acknowledging the visual of a movie, then... Yeah, you're you're kind of really glossing over a massive part of it. But I wonder if it is, you know, to to say something is gritty or, or shaky, I think is talking about um, how it's shot. But maybe it's just not it's not um, explicit enough for him. Well, it's, it's it's not reaching any conclusions about it. It's not saying what it's doing. Why is it shaky? It's like how saying it, it has red hair. Sure. Right. The whole point. The whole importance of talking about form is that it's the easiest way to talk about. What I think is one of the most ignored aspects of writing about film right now, which is the emotional content of it. People, you you see people now, I see this all the time. People will watch like Transformers 3 and say something like, oh, it was really cool, it was great, it was terrible. And they just completely disregard the emotional experience of watching the movie, which is super exciting in parts, from their conclusions that it was a bad movie. There's a step they... They disregard. And that step, I think, is the physical sensory experience of watching it, the sense of the form and what effect a close up has on you psychologically and even like bio, bio, biologically. That's a word. Because, like, I, I remember I saw, I've seen Jurassic Park now 
like everybody else, 159,000 times. But the first time I saw it was in movie theaters when it came out. And uh, the last time I saw it was in movie theaters when it came out again a couple the years ago. The 3D version? Me yeah. too, yeah. 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 And I would trade every last one of those median viewings of it for those two theatrical ones mm. because of the actual physical sensory experience of when a 40-foot T-Rex walks in front of the in front of you, it is a 40-foot object in front of your eyes. And it's something that you can't you can't fight it and you can't replicate it, but it's the least discussed facet of filmmaking now, I think. That just that you say he says something like this movie was gritty, but you reach no conclusions and no interpretation about how did you feel about it being gritty? What elements made it gritty? Even what does gritty mean? Gritty is like one of the most overused words in I mean, I've seen commercials that people call gritty. A commercial, by definition, can't be gritty. Sure. It's, it's a safety net. How about the filmmaker's intent? So it sounds like, from what you're saying, is it's, it's important to talk about the filmmaking aspect because of your own emotional reaction, which I also I agree with you. You know, I think if any movie gets an emotional reaction out of you, that's a, a successful film in some but way. I, every movie does, every time. That's When watching an image, that's what happens. The emotion could be boredom. <laughs> but emotions get a lot of times to be bored. Yeah, yeah but it, it's not like it's not like a good movie makes you feel something. It's every movie makes you feel something every second you're watching them because what you do in life is sit there and feel things. I think the point that she's she's brought up in like a couple pieces is that like if a movie pisses her off, that's she has to acknowledge that in a positive way when. Yeah, I mean, anything that, that, yeah. anything that gets a real strong visceral reaction in me, whether it's love, hate, anger, Yeah, the easy thing anger. to do is, <laughs> this movie pleases me, and it, therefore it's good. The harder thing to do is, this movie pisses me the fuck off, and I have to acknowledge that there's something there because of that. I also know you, people, though, that will avoid watching movies because they don't want to have an emotional experience. Yeah, right. I've seen that. And, and that, to me, I, I you know... I can understand being like, well, I'm in a good mood. I don't want to watch the, like, you know, Schindler's List tonight, you know. But uh, you know, to avoid Schindler's List because you know it's going to be sad, I, I don't understand. Personally. It's also that's this thing that people fall into with horror movies, where sure. like there are a lot of people that just dismiss horror outright or any other genre outright, and they forget that there are horror movies for people that don't like most horror movies. There are westerns for people that don't like most westerns. All these genres. There, there's enough variety that saying you don't like horror movies is like saying you don't like a genre of music that you haven't really explored that you're just sort of writing off, you know? The big thing, I think, though, is if you, you think about a critic as some form, some way or another, of a journalist, right? Journalists, they have, they have their questions they have to answer. Every piece has to be who, what, when, where, why, how. You look at 99% of what's happening in film criticism and you're answering who, you're answering what, and then, I guess, when. Yeah, it came out uh, last week. Yeah, and then that's it. <laughs> they, they, the, the, the concept of a, a review that's a synopsis, a sort of rundown of the visual characteristics of it and who, who's in it doesn't, it contributes nothing. Right, I think you have to. You have then the point he says about the uh, the duty. It's really a journalist's duty to report yeah. completely yeah. about a topic. Like if you were writing about something that fucked up that happened in the neighborhood, and you left out those other important journalistic aspects, yeah, people would be like, "That was a shit piece," you know. But and there's so an much, accepted level of this when you're talking about film or music yeah. or what have you. Well, so much stems from it, and so much I think is is. Almost, um, you need to stop and think about it or you'll never realize it. Because you can say, this movie was gritty. And to you, that means a ton. Right, it's a shorthand for but, you. But you, you don't say how it was gritty, which is very important if for anybody who wants to learn how to make something like that. What elements, what, what signatures, what's important to create a gritty sensory experience and even more important and part of the reason i think so much of 
discussing films isn't really discussing them anymore is you don't ask, let alone answer, why? You know, why was some, why is, if you look at Transformers 3, why does Transformers 3 turn into some horrendous minstrel show comedy in the middle? I don't have an answer for it, but it does. <laughs> if I was going to write a piece on it, exactly, I wouldn't shoot past it. I would. And why? Why the Stan Brakhage aspects, which you yeah. accurately pointed out, that a lot of that Transformers vibe, where it essentially devolves into colors and sounds and explosions, it has a very avant-garde experimental cinema colors explosions Stan Brakhage quality to it. You pointed that out, like on Twitter, like years ago. I thought that was like the most spot on thing I'd ever read about the Transformers movies. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily need to be something that expansive. I mean, it can be something, it could be Bring It On. I mean, you look at Bring It On, and there are tens of thousands of decisions in that movie. And nobody has ever asked about it why. Yeah, or and that's how. That's, it really comes down to that. That's part of what we're trying to do with Smug Film. With each piece that goes up, we look for pieces of that that we can sort of expose people to. Or, I mean, there's no reason why we even have the site other than that aspect, you know? Like, that's why me and Greg started it, was that he... And it, it came to, like, why you even started writing for the site, too, is because, like, he would when he would write about movies on Facebook, it would always become a huge discussion, and a lot of things would be learned, even if people disagreed with everything that he said, and a lot of times people <laughs> disagreed with everything that he said. But he had that draw to what he would write, and I would have that draw to what I would write about films briefly on Facebook, and you would have that draw, too, Jenna, which is why I kind of recruited you for the... Uh, the smug film, uh, I don't know, what, what would you call it? Team? <laughs> I have a lot Superhero of opinions, squad. Man. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you would write things and people would be drawn to it like moths to a flame. You know? I, well, maybe that's also it, though, is that idea of having such a strong opinion. I think that a lot of the writing that you see about films is very much like, it's like book reportish, you know? It's like, well, mm -hmm. saw this, as you were saying, you know, comes out tomorrow. Or writing and about the synopsis, like going sure. on paragraph after paragraph the synopsis. And then it's maybe like the one thing aspect. of like, it made me feel okay. All yeah. right, go see it. And like four you stars. You see that in the New York Times so much, and it pisses me the fuck off. Because <laughs> of all places, you would want the New York Times to be a place where you could, I could pick up that section, read through the movie reviews, have a great time. I see a lot of that, those horrible, horrific offenses when it comes to writing about movies in that paper. One of my favorite pieces of writing about forum is a New York Times thing from 1915. If you ever read the Bosley Crowther's original review of Birth of a Nation, and this is kind of an interesting experience because you, you, don't, you don't think about um, cinematic elements as something that are created. But in this case, he's talking about how Birth of a Nation, the big climax is um, there. There's um, this woman who's about to get attacked and a guy riding in to save her. And it's basic. Now it's like one of the basic building blocks of filmmaking. But his review, he's talking about how they kept cutting back and forth between the guy riding and the woman <laughs> who was about to be attacked. And it was really hard to follow. <laughs> and he feels like that's just one of those experiments that people are doing in this new medium that'll level off and they'll stop doing it right. in a year or two. Nobody will intercut between things anymore because it's just too complicated. We'll have to find that and post a link to that when this goes up. That sounds amazing. All right, guys. I think we covered that well. I think we're going to answer a couple mailbag questions and then we'll get out of here. So let me pull that up real quick. Let's do it. You guys ready to do it? We'll do them quick. We'll just blow through them. All right. Christina asks... Am I a douchebag for being obsessed with Tarkovsky? I love Tarkovsky. I, I vote no. <laughs> okay, how about you, John? Yeah, I love Tarkovsky. All right, I'm going to be the odd man out here. I, I can't get into it. Can't do it. I, I've tried Stalker more times than I've tried most movies. Can't get into it. <laughs> can't get into Solaris. Can't do it. What I like about him is, is he uh, really had no interest in American culture or film or art at all or really any kind of western stuff so his movies are kind of cool because they're just completely disconnected from the major filmmaking elements of the time they're like the only movies 
that you can really find that like are like untouched by Hitchcock. You know, they're sort of like virgin territory. You should see Yvonne's childhood. That's my favorite Tarkovsky. All right, maybe oh, yeah, I'll, that's a great one. Right, a I'll check out that's my favorite though. It's that, just that'll gorgeous. be the one that I just commit to. It's and it's, then I'll report back maybe on here and I'll plus it's like an hour and a half. Yeah, it's not it's not as long. I mean, because that's the, I mean Tarkovsky is, is it can be painful, mm-hmm. but I like it. I like the pain. <laughs> yeah, and even like I think Harry, one of the guys who writes for the site, Harry Brewis, he even pointed out to me. That Stalker and my movie Shredder had like these weird connections that I obviously didn't know because I haven't seen Stalker really. Um, so I have to watch that one because of that because he insists that there are these weird things that link up to them. That and one's on YouTube. Moss Film put a, they've been like yes. digitizing their archive. Nice. So you can watch that for free legal on YouTube. Sweet. And we'll put Moss a link Film. to that too for people. All right, so let's move on to the next. I, I don't think she's a douchebag for liking. For being obsessed with Tarkovsky. <laughs> In conclusion, you're a douche. <laughs> yeah. Um, even if I don't like Tarkovsky, I don't think she's a douchebag. It's not one of those douchebag filmmakers for me. Who Larry is? Clark, I would say you're a douchebag for <laughs> liking him. Um, but Tarkovsky, no. All right. Next question. This is from Alex Hyatt, one of our fellow Smug Film guys. He says, why hasn't anyone from Smug Film but me seen Frozen yet? I want to. I never did. <laughs> I kind of want to, too. I, I liked his take on it. I wanted to see what's going on. But I don't want to go to the theater and see it, really. Everyone's obsessed with it, actually. It's funny. I, you know, and I always like Disney. I'm a fan of Disney. I've been, I try to go see their movies. Honestly, truthfully, the reason I haven't seen it is that I don't like CGI. I don't like CGI animation. And that's not to say that there aren't really great movies that are that way. But it, that's what made me not go see it. If it, mm-hmm. it had been uh, an an, like traditionally animated movie... Absolutely would have seen it. That movie was like a slow burn. It's taken on like a huge life that it didn't have when it initially came out. Yeah. Like it, it was kind of dead for a while. And then like people started getting obsessed with the song, which I can't fucking stand. <laughs> but and then they started exploring like the interesting. There's some like uh, gender aspects of the movie that are really interesting and like sexuality stuff, apparently. Uh, which I know. hear mixed. People either say that, that that's dead on or it's like way over. Exactly. But everybody's talking about that movie. Do you have any impulse to see it, John? That's the one with the little fucking snowman guy. And yep. Yeah, that ain't for me. <laughs> I got Just, burnt out on all that what do you shit after snowman? Toy Story 3. What do you got against snowman? That was like snowman. a velvet painting of Elvis, that movie. It was most cloying What about that movie, shit. Jack Frost with the snowman? Oh, well, Michael Keaton's in that, yeah. so yeah, I'll see that all day. See, that's your missing link. That connects <laughs> snowman guy and Michael yeah. Keaton. No, I'm, I'm off those... <laughs> Cartoons for adults, for kids. No, I, I, I hear you on that. I, I hated Toy Story three. Yeah, could not stand that one. Did you I like avoided that one? it? I just, I, you know, I liked Toy Story. Toy Story two, I didn't care for, and then everyone was also going so nuts, and I was like, you know what? I just don't care. Three is, is awful. This the only room of three people <laughs> in the world where none of them liked Toy Story three. I probably is this it? This is the real community. This meeting. is a yeah. This is a singularity. This is like a wormhole event in history. <laughs> Where if we probably run around this room really quickly, we'll probably... The podcast will explode. Yeah, we'll (laughs) shoot through time to some other place in the galaxy. Next question. Um, (laughs) All right, let me skip around here. Um, All right, this one's from Scott. He asks, if movies were ice cream flavors, what would the works of Akira Kurosawa, John Cassavetes, and David Cronenberg taste like? This is kind of like a synesthesia kind of question, right? Let's start with Kurosawa. What, what would his ice cream taste like? Well, he's a lot of guys on horsebacks, bumping up and down, running real fast. Rocky Road. There's a lot of, ah, just sort of like rocky dirt I roads. I like where you're like, with that. I can't come kinetic. up with a better one for that one. That was, yeah, that's That's, that's it. Great. Rocky right, I'm Road. Out. I'm out. Fuck Damn. that. That was shit. All right, so John Cassavetes. It's got to be like a rum raisin, or it has to be some alcohol. Yeah, maybe alcohol things. poured on top of ice cream or something, right? Some quality like that. I like that. Yeah. I think you also kind of yeah nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, what would be like? Are there any other ones besides like rum raisin, like ice cream flavors that are alcohol based? You can find or? them. You know what else though? Everybody in Cassavetti's movies are kind of like wrinkly, like raisins. Damn. Rum raisin. Damn, we got it. Okay. I don't even I don't care if he even liked rum. That's the one. All <laughs> right, Cronenberg. Cronenberg. I just want to say black sesame ice cream. <laughs> just because of the look. Yeah, yeah. The look and the feel, that gritty black ice cream, but it but like it, it goes down smoothly, but 
it kind of turns you off at the same time. I like that. I was going to go pistachio that was just for like the green color. So that would have worked And like too. the taste that's like implacable, but it's kind of desirable kind yeah. of thing. That would be my choice for that. But I like the I like the black sesame one. How about you? Any ideas for Cronenberg? No, I think that's good. Black that's a sesame, good one. Unpredictable, right? putrefying. This is one of those questions I didn't think we would nail, but I think we <laughs> fucking thoroughly nailed this one. High five, everyone. High five. All right. And I think that's a good place to close. Thank you guys for listening to the very first Smug Film Podcast. I hope you come back next week or two weeks or whenever we do this again. I think we did good, right? Yay. Thanks for listening. It's enjoyable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, people. <laughs> commitment yeah that's really gonna keep them coming back (laughs) (laughs) all right people whoever you are any last words guys john give me one sentence that is a last word watch jaws all right watch jaws how about jenna what do you want to leave them with give them a sentence you just like froze me with watch jaws now i'm just thinking of jurassic park go watch jurassic park (laughs) (laughs) all right what do i want people to watch is it gonna be spielberg (sighs) no You know what? It will be Spielberg. Watch Empire of the Sun. I love that movie. I think that's a very underrated movie. Like, that falls into, like, the minor work category for him, and it shouldn't, because it's a really good movie. You got Ben Stiller in and out of nowhere. You got, uh, your young Christian Bale, who fucking nails it. You got a lot of good stuff in that movie. That's a good, that's a good movie, and the Blu-ray of it's gorgeous, so check that one out. Empire of the Sun. Alright, that's it for Smug Film Podcast Episode 1. Thank you all for listening, and uh, see you soon. And now, a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. I'm writing a screenplay. It's a sci-fi sports film. It's about a bunch of sea monsters that start an underwater baseball league. I call it 20,000 Leagues of Their Own. This has been a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonykapfer.com. K-A-P-F-E-R.